Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my new podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. It is T-minus seven days to election day with nearly 60 million votes, 60 million votes already in the bank and nothing but the final frantic sprint to the finish line remaining in a campaign that has been unusual, unpredictable, unprecedented, and often unhinged on every level. In the past week, we've seen COVID spikes across the country, a new Supreme Court justice being rammed through the U.S. Senate, the final debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, along with the return to the campaign trail of a fired-up and ready-to-go Barack Obama. With that last item at the top of my mind, I thought it would be an ideal moment to convene a little reunion, dialing in three indispensable members of the team that helped elect and re-elect Obama to get, among other things, their perspectives on the state of the race and their former boss's role in it. First up, Obama's former chief strategist and current director of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, host of one podcast, The Axe Files, and co-host of another, Hacks on Tap, David Axelrod. The state of Joe Biden's campaign is nervous optimism because all the data and atmospherics point in his direction, but he has to deal with a bunch of hand-wringing, bedwetting Democrats who remember what happened four years ago and are constantly seeing the sky falling. Next, Obama's 2008 campaign manager and White House senior advisor, co-host with Steve Schmidt of the excellent new podcast from The Recount, Battleground, and solo host of another podcast, Campaign HQ, David Pluff. The state of Donald Trump's campaign is a clusterfuck. Running out of money, no closing argument. You know, the early vote numbers don't look great from a Republican standpoint. And uh, he had four years to put it together, and it's in shambles. And finally, director of scheduling in advance for Obama 08, deputy chief of staff in his White House, and someone with nearly telepathic insight into the happenings inside his noggin, Alyssa Mastromonaco. The state of Barack Obama's brain is liberated and focused. Barack Obama hit the trail this week and he proved to everybody that he is still fired up and very ready to go. And I think he still has a lot left to say. In a way, this episode of Hell and High Water is a consolation prize. The original plan, which I worked on sporadically, but seriously all through 2019 and the first two months of 2020, was to stage a series of live events with Axelrod, Pluff, Master Monaco, and one or two of their colleagues from the 08 and 2012 campaigns. An evening with the Obama Brain Trust was what these events were going to be called, and the idea was to stage them across the country, Boston, New York, D.C., Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, starting around Labor Day and ending right before Election Day. Given the existential stakes of the 2020 campaign and the -the off-the-charts levels of interest and engagement on the part of ordinary voters, I figured we'd be able to draw respectable crowds to hear what the Obama Brain Trust had to say. These were, after all, some of the sharpest strategists and operatives I have come across in 30 years in this racket, sharp enough to pull off something that now may seem like no big deal, but at the time was wildly improbable, the elevation to the presidency of an African-American first-term senator with the middle name Hussein. And as if all of that wasn't enough, the Davids and Alyssa were also affable and charming, funny and wise, and terrific storytellers to boot. Unfortunately, we will never know if we could have pulled off the Obama Brain Trust Tourapalooza 2020. COVID-19 wadded up that dream and tossed it on the trash heap. But even the most devastating pandemic is no match for the power of podcasting. So today we're going to have precisely the kind of conversation I'd imagined having on stage with these three from coast to coast. Part political analysis on the state of the race we are witnessing right now, 
part reminiscence about the two historic races they were instrumental parts of, and part psychoanalysis of the bizarre dynamic that's taken hold over nearly a decade between Obama and Trump, the latter launching his political career with a racist crusade against the former and continuing to this day to nurse a near-pathological obsession with him, the former first considering the latter a joke, then a menace, then a threat to the very foundations of our democracy, and now marshalling all of his prodigious rhetorical prowess to send Agent Orange packing. Is that the outcome we're headed towards? Is Donald Trump done and dusted? Or do the Democratic bedwetters, a vivid phrase, it should be noted, that was first employed by David Plouffe, those bedwetters currently fretting over the possibility that we're headed for a replay of 2016, do they have any good reason to be soaking their sheets? For the answers to these and countless other questions, including how often does Barack Obama use the word motherfucker, sit back and enjoy the wit and wisdom of David Axelrod, David Plouffe, and Alyssa Mastromonaco as we welcome the Obama Brain Trust to hell and high water. We know that he continues to do business with China because he's got a secret Chinese bank account. How is that possible? How is that possible? A secret Chinese bank account. Listen, can you imagine if I had had a secret Chinese bank account when I was running for re-election? You think, you think, my, you think Fox News might have been a little concerned about that? They would have called me Beijing Barry. <laughs> so you love the there's horns. that man, Barack Obama. And we're here with what I'm calling the Obama Brain Trust, our friends, David Axelrod, David Pluff, and Alyssa Mastromonaco. And podcasting is an, an audio medium. So you all, unfortunately, don't get to see what I see here on Zoom, which was the smiles, the warmth, the appreciation <laughs> on the faces of these three longtime Barack Obama adjutants, hearing him talk about Beijing Barry. Um, guys, what was it like for the three of you to see your boss back out on the trail this week? I'm still getting my arms around being an adjutant. Yeah. Bring your dictionary, dude. <laughs> Listen, man, he is great at what he does. He's a great communicator. And he obviously, you know, he's been choosing his spots and his interventions, but it's go time. And there's a lot on his mind. And you know what? Everybody, that was a great bite. There were a bunch of great hits that would make you smile. I thought the most passionate part of the speech was at the end when he talked about uh, who we are as a people. I think that's what he sees in this race. This is not about Republicans and Democrats. It's about what kind of country we are. What are our values? And uh, I thought he made that a point very, very well, as well as talking to young people and you know disaffected folks about not making the perfect the enemy of the good at a time when so much is at stake. Yeah. Well, first of all, it reminds you how, how much of a weapon humor has been for him through the years, number one. Number two, I mean, Alyssa can speak better to this than I, but it was the whole day. Like I thought the, you know, the event with the young men in Philly was great. The OTR with the volunteers was awesome. And that was good. And by the way, speaking to a bunch of cars is not easy. So he, you know, his delivery was great. But what strikes me is I think the case he's making for Biden to me is a more passionate, urgent case than he made on his own behalf. Like he really does believe this is the most important election in his lifetime. And you can sense it in mm -hmm. kind of the urgency of his appeal. You know, and if there's one thing I think the three of us know is that when Barack Obama has been caged for a long time, yeah. when he has been <laughs> when he's been cooped up, he likes yeah. to say the bear is off the leash. And so there's like nothing that's better than watching 
him also entertain himself. You know, like he was (laughs) having a really good time up there. Like we've all seen politicians and presidents who have had to go through the motions. And he was so alive and just I was very emotional watching it because it was it was what we had been missing. It feels like this whole time is just hearing what he actually had to say about things and like you know that when he wrote Beijing Barry himself that he laughed at himself when he wrote it and that's like all I could think of totally totally I also thought about how good the timing was Mm -hmm. because if he were out there and this was a protracted surrogate war between him and Trump and he was as luminescent as he was that day that would not have been good for Biden He's, right. he's entering the fray at just the right time. Biden has established himself as a solid front runner and they're using him, you know, really, really well. Going down to Florida as yep. we speak, uh, going to Miami, Dade, which is going to be a really critical battleground and then going up to the I-4 corridor and, you know, which is another key battleground and addressing those voters that Biden needs to do better with uh, uh, younger voters and particularly minority voters. I mean, I, I think they're, that they're using him brilliantly here and at just the right time. Yeah, you guys know, it's funny, it's just the thing that Alyssa said. You guys have all watched way more Barack Obama events than I have, but I feel like in the course of eight years, I saw a lot of Barack Obama events and even before that um, in the Senate. Barack Obama had a, it was, did not always love being on the stump. It was not like he took great pleasure in a lot of political events, not all of them by a long shot. But when you saw the re- the events came along that really counted when the game was on the line or in circumstances where he was allowed to let his humor mix with his politics, those were things that I can remember thinking back, you know, when you could see he was having fun and man, he looked like he was having fun. And that was my main thing. My main takeaway was he the gusto of that performance. He was just, man, I'm just, I've been waiting to say all this stuff for a long time and I'm going to get in there and say it all. And wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall with Donald Trump as he watched the as he watched this. I mean, we all remember yes. he did take Trump apart at that White House Correspondents' Dinner in 2011. And I was sitting about 10 yards away from Trump and uh, he did not like it. No, he did no. not like it. And I'm going to spend a decent chunk of this podcast towards the end discussing the Obama-Trump relationship. So let's put that on ice for the moment and, and turn our attention to just a table setting conversation here. You know, we are now 10 days out as we record this on a Saturday. By the time people are listening to this, it will be a week out from the election. And you guys are all incredibly perspicacious consumers of political data. You know a lot. You see a lot. Where do you think we are right now in terms of like where this race stands? Does that mean we like data? Or does it mean we perspire? Yeah, you got it. Okay. <laughs> Since when is it like a democratic thing to mock intellect? We're just mocking you, man. Not, yeah. We're mocking okay. you, not intellect. Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. Don't fair generalize. Enough. This is all about you. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Uh, well, listen, I think the question which I get asked, you know, as I'm sure David and Alyssa do, like, you know, literally dozens of times a day, some from yeah. reporters, friends, like, how could Trump win? And, you know, the truth is there's still a narrow scenario. I think it's incredibly unlikely. But first of all, let's say that what we're seeing in early vote doesn't continue all the way through the period that we did kind of have a lot of people excited in the beginning. That would be one. Number two, we kind of fall off the cliff in some places like happened to Hillary in Florida on election day. And then, you know, when you look at a poll that shows 50-43, you know, the question is where are the other seven going? And we know the third party vote's going to be down. Um, I think it's unlikely Trump gets five or six of that seven. But, you know, there's a bunch of things that could add up. But as you guys know, Biden's in a better place right now than we were in 12. And in many yes. states, even yeah. than we were in eight Yes. Um, it's like real. And, you know, every time I talk to our former Republican opponents, the Schmitz and Stewart's and 
Rick Wilson's of the world, their message is basically, you guys are like, you have PTSD. Trump's going down and he's going down big. Now, I find them to be a little overly optimistic, mm-hmm. but you know, it would take an inside straight. That's what Trump pulled last time. But what's different here is you got Florida, you got Arizona, you got North Carolina. You may even have Georgia and Texas. And when you talk to Democrats who are working in state house races, and I always love looking at a presidential race through the prism of state Senate yeah. and state house race. What do those polls show? And they are showing like some of these suburban state house districts have flipped 30 points in four years. Okay? Yeah. They're kind of the flips that, you know, Trump created in 16 in rural and exurban areas. So to me, Biden can lose most of his targets now and still win. That's always where you want to be. But I think it's going to be like 40 percent Biden wins by seven or eight points. He gets north of 400 electoral votes. It's a blowout. 40 percent, you know, it tightens and he wins some of these battleground states more like three to four. Um, and then there's a 20% chance I think it gets super close. Uh, but I think because of 16, we're overstating the latter scenario. Yeah. Everything we're seeing right. suggests that this could be an absolute ass kicking, but we're all nervous because of 16, which I think is fine. Like, I don't know anybody out there that's not working as hard as they could. <laughs> Listen, man, you know, let, let's, just, let's just be honest about <laughs> this. If Pluff were managing this campaign, he'd be telling everyone we, that this thing could go down. Right. And he'd be telling, he'd <laughs> yeah, be kicking true. everyone's ass. He'd be doing exactly what Jen O'Malley Dillon is doing, and they should be doing it yeah as i always like to remind people david has heard me do this a number of times in his first foray as a pundit in 2016 when he was out of the fray i got to have him on my television show say a hundred percent hillary clinton has a hundred percent chance of winning he said it over and over again we got to the point where we called him hundo p yeah well <laughs> i had said 90 percent, and then you guys pushed me i'm like why the hell not go to 100 you know i hope you learned yeah. your lesson there i did he learned some I lessons did. there Yeah, I don't think anybody would disagree that there is a much greater chance that uh, Biden will surprise on the high side than that Donald Trump will get to 270 electoral votes. And the reason for it is this isn't 2016. He's an embattled incumbent. He's been mired in the low to uh, uh, mid 40s on his approval rating throughout his presidency. That is probably the best predictor of vote for an incumbent president. Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton. He is 10 points at least more popular than she was. And he's been getting more popular as the election approaches, yes. uh, which is a very good sign. And unusual. Uh, and and one, one thing that I've been monitoring throughout is the vote of people who don't like either candidate. Mm. That vote went 30 percent by 30 to uh, Trump in 2016. He's losing that by 20 here. That race was about Hillary Clinton. This race is about Donald Trump. And people don't like what they see. I mean, look, the things that worry me are just with large numbers of mail-in votes. The the disqualification of mail-in votes is more frequent than other votes. And they'll obviously, if it's a close race in any state, the Trump people are going to try and contest every single ballot. Uh, I worry a little bit about this coronavirus spike. It should impact Republicans more than Democrats because more Republicans are planning to vote on Election Day at the poll and may be discouraged. But they're also crazy, you know, these Trump supporters, and they may disregard that and just go and vote. Whereas there may be some Democrats who are planning to vote on Election Day who don't feel comfortable voting because we'll be we could be at 100,000 cases a day. Yeah. And then you look at a state like Wisconsin and you have a, a public health emergency there right now. So if you want to conjure up reasons to worry, you can find them. But you have to really look hard to do it. So, you know, granted, New York, everyone thinks of New York and they think of it as very blue. But I live in a place that's quite red. And, you know, Plup and Axe both know that 
to me, crowds and signs mean a lot. You know, I think that people's enthusiasm of like going to the effort to get a sign and everything. And so up here, we don't actually have garbage service. So I go to the dump twice a week. And the guys there, hardcore Trumpers, all of them got COVID. All of them are voting for Joe Biden. The sign wars up here are extreme. And Joe, I mean, Joe Biden and Kamala are kicking ass up here. But the most important thing is that uh, Elise Stefanik's ads have gone bipartisan. And so, oh, yeah, that is a good she sign. Was, she was so entirely like, like Trump, Fort Drum, like everything she's bringing to upstate New York. And last Sunday during the Sunday shows, she ran her ad every commercial break. And it was Elise Stefanik with Barack Obama getting wow. bipartisan results for wow. upstate New York. Wow. So. Yes. That's a tell. And there's signs like that all over the place. I mean, I'm still stunned, you know, to see John Cornyn turn on Trump, you know, was a moment where I thought, you know, there's no world where John Cornyn's repudiating Donald Trump where he's not seeing signs that he could lose his race. And a world where John Cornyn's losing his race in Texas or could lose his race in Texas, a world where you're talking about the plus scenario of Joe Biden north of 400 and the and a giant Senate sweep for Democrats. So that's sort of the view. I think this is the clear eyed view among people who know what they're talking about about this race. So we had a debate last week where it was the last big moment where given Donald Trump is clearly behind, he's got to catch up. He's got to do something to alter the trajectory of the race in this very short time we have left. Mm-hmm. Did you guys see anything in that debate that that accomplished that purpose, that where Trump could move the needle in a way that would be meaningful to the trajectory of the campaign in these last days? No. no. Look, I think no. every all the Republicans were uh, all the Republicans were really happy because, you know, he ate with a knife and fork. But, you know, it's still the same old meal and it's not good. Uh, you know, his defense on the virus is not good. The absence of a health care plan is not good. You know, his answers on race and obviously the, the poor kids uh, down at the border and so on. You know, none of it is good. And there's not, you know, the thing about the Biden performance in that race, in that debate, you can always tell a campaign that is on track when there is harmonization between what the candidate is saying and what you see in their ads and all their other communications, he was hitting all his points you right. know, on the virus, on middle class economics, on unity, which was a big theme throughout. Trump kept handing him the opportunity by going to blue state kind of pejorative references. So Trump, David said it at the top, he is a message mess right now. And that was apparent even in that debate. And Biden, he probably could have phrased the energy answer better. He gave them a little tape that they will use in Texas and in Pennsylvania and parts of Ohio. But in the main, I I think Biden looked coherent and confident. And I don't and uh, even if it were a draw, which, you know, I'm not sure it was, even if it were a draw, if you've got a guy who's eight, nine, ten points ahead, a draw is not a great night for you. Right. Trump was terrible in the first part of the debate, which is on COVID. I just saw, you know, in Florida today, he's complaining how obsessed everybody is in COVID. And <laughs> after nine, November 4th, you're not going to have to hear about COVID anymore. It's yeah. the thing everybody cares about. Okay? Right, right. It's like Franklin Delano Roosevelt deciding not to talk about the Great Depression or World War II. Yeah. Okay. It's a disaster. And um, the big thing is the big thing. And Trump wants it to go away. And everybody can tell. Like this guy uh, is done with the virus, but the virus is not done with us. And what a terrible end for him. To David's point, we could be at 100,000 cases 
You've got places around the country now that are going to be over there uh, limited in terms of ICU beds. Um, and Trump's just out there basically having super spreader events and saying yeah. it's not as bad as people think. I mean, yeah. so that, again, in terms of like where the race is, that dynamic could help Biden end up more on the high side of what's possible here. Right. So, Alyssa, let me I want to stay with to pick up where Pluff left off with the super spreader events. Right. So we got these 10 days now. We know what Trump's going to do. He's going to go and do rallies. He lives for the rally. Doesn't care how many people who he gets sick. There's now reporting. I saw some LA Times piece, the first of I'm sure going to be many about the fact that people are tracking COVID spikes in places that Trump has visited. And of course, there's a correlation. We're starting to see that. He goes someplace and then people get infected. He's spreading the virus himself. He's the Johnny Appleseed of COVID right now. But that's what he's going to do, right? A lot of, lot of rallies, no masks. Mm-hmm. What, what is Joe Biden going to do? And I don't mean, I'm asking you to predict, but if you're the Biden campaign, you're faced with a challenge here, right? Your paramount objective, the thing that you must not allow to happen is you cannot let Joe Biden get COVID between now and Election Day, because that would be an unpredictable, potentially game-changing event. But you also want to have your guy out there. You don't want to be in the basement. The basement strategy worked for them very well, but you don't want to close the campaign like you're in hiding. And, And I know they think that. So what would you do? What do you think they should do? What do you think they will do? So... You know, one of the things in 2016 that really stressed me out is that Hillary did not have great crowds, right? They just weren't. Even the night before the election, when she was in Philadelphia with Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen and Michelle Obama, they had like 25,000 people, which was bad. And that always concerned me. Now, this time we can't compare apples to apples because we're not going to do super spreader events. But one thing that I think would be so important. I thought about it when he was at the debate the other night. It was like the one thing I didn't love when he was like, they were talking about trying to call him a socialist. Trump was trying to call him a socialist. He's like, I beat those people. I beat all those people. Their policies were rejected. And it's like, oh, not really. Let's back it up a little bit. But so if I were him, you have to change up the visuals every day. And the only way to do that, to get it covered, to be on Twitter, to be on Instagram, to have people be like, oh, he's hustling. How do you show that he's hustling? Right. And if I am them, I have him at drive-ins, wherever the fuck they can find a drive-in, and they're with Bernie. He should be on stage with Bernie. He should be on stage with Elizabeth Warren. He should be with Cory Booker. He should get Lizzo was in Michigan. I Get him on the stage with Lizzo. Like do things that are interesting that communicate him with all different parts of the Democratic Party, um, not just him on stages. Because, look, I mean, there are people who are super dynamic speakers and there are people who not are not as dynamic uh, a speaker. And Joe Biden is not the most dynamic speaker. And so... You know, you don't want anyone getting COVID, but I am perfectly fine with a well-masked Bernie Sanders in Wisconsin, (laughs) with a well-masked Joe Biden separated. Maybe there's plexiglass. I don't fucking care. But I would like to see them out showing him every day with different parts of the party. And it also helps demonstrate a hustle because when you look at the nightly news, if it's literally just a bunch of cars and a flag backdrop, it doesn't look like they're hustling. And I just always think the hustle works and looks good he can get one of those pope mobiles yeah Fine. i'll so build dude. it for them be awesome <laughs> hey so, you know what can i just say i i i just disagree first of all Alyssa's the best there is honestly at the production of politics um on the on the debate thing i understand why you say what you say about that line uh, it was really on health care and on whether he was going for medicare for all and universal health care and I actually thought that was an important line for him because the line of attack against him is that. And in the general electorate, 
you know, if they came to believe that he was a supporter of Bernie's health care plan, um, I, I actually think it would have hurt him. And uh, I thought it was good to have a brush back because it dealt with a whole bunch of stuff that Trump's throwing at him that basically yeah. he's just the addled tool of others. And it was important to show a little bit of strength there, I thought, and a little bit of independence from that. So, I mean, you and I may have- No, I totally get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. It's how he did it. He could have done a little bit differently than like, I beat all those losers. Yeah. I mean, you know- Well, he didn't say losers. Well- um, It had that tone. But I think the overall point, he's been consistent on that, which is you're running against me. Right. Um, And I think that's been really, really good of him to do that. And the other thing about like- I just think at the end of the day, remember when Romney and Ryan, like so much at 12 was Barack Obama's going to cut Medicare. It's like nobody thinks the first black Democratic president's cutting Medicare. Like people just don't think Joe Biden's a crazy socialist. And he's had to reinforce that. And I think he's done that pretty well. But that's the other thing. These attacks, um, you know, to your point, David, he's not Hillary. He's he's, he's just kind of a boring, old, experienced white politician who people think's a nice guy. Right. And that's why his favorables are rising. And, And Trump, by the way, the reason his favorables is rising is because Trump whole message was this guy is either an old adult person who will slobber slobber all over the resolute desk in the Oval Office or. He's so powerful, he's a threat to the entire American enterprise. Right. Right. Didn't really make, didn't make a lot of sense. And across as neither of those two. Yeah. Well, they try to combine the two with this idea that he is just the tool of others, that he's right. the Trojan horse. But uh, in any case, uh, you're right that all of it has failed. Uh, I mean, he has been from the beginning culturally inconvenient for, for Trump. Tr- for Trump. So here's my question about the, the remaining days here, right? October surprises. We've had a number of them already, yeah. including including in Donald September. Trump getting COVID. Yeah. I mean, in, in this world, in 2020, you know, I'd still anticipate some crazy shit happening between now and election day. And, you know, Trump was praying for having a vaccine that he could announce. He's not going to have that, right? He was praying for some good numbers on COVID, even though he's doing nothing to, to make them happen. He's not going to have that. He's got COVID's on the rise. He doesn't have a vaccine. The debate did not change the game for him at all. So right now, what they're focused on is, is this Hunter Biden thing, right? That's in their mind, this 2016, this is, you know, they want Hunter Biden's laptop to be the Comey letter. Right. It's now lock him up, up instead of lock her up. Uh, it's Biden crime family. They you know brought the guy, Tony Bababui, whatever his name was, to the debate the other day, who was supposed to be the fact witness that proved nice, that Joe nice, Biden was- Nice cultural sensitivity there. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm just playing for the stern vote. What can I tell you? Um, but that is the question. So I I don't want to go really deep into the into the Hunter Biden weeds, but I do want to talk about is there something in this? This is the other the other category that a lot of Democrats were fearful of an October surprise engineered by Bill Barr. So the Durham Commission's kind of gone away. The, the, he's not going to indict Barack Obama. You know, the unmasking investigation went away. Is there something Bill Barr can do related to Hunter Biden in the next 10 days that could matter, that could shake up the race? Bill Barr comes out and announces a special prosecutor is going to investigate Biden after the election. Hugh Hewitt's calling for that. There are some Republican congressmen who are calling for that. I just want to like kind of contemplate what are some currently known unknowns, but can we imagine something where they try to manufacture something in these last 10 days that could matter? Where anything is possible uh, with Donald Trump, and I think he is he is uh, someone for who has no boundaries. So uh, the question is, will others go along, and what will it mean in the last ten days? First of all, I thought the biggest waste of time for Donald Trump in that debate 
was the time he spent on the Hunter Biden shit, which nobody understood. Nobody right. knew what it meant. And what he didn't do until the 88th minute was attack uh, Biden on taxes, which probably is the most fertile place for him to go, even though he distorts what Biden would do. And, and that's what Republicans wanted him to do. And he never got around to it in a real way until his summation. Um, I, I got to tell you, I think anything that happens in these last 10 days is going to be viewed through the prism of politics and people are going to look at it. And in some ways, it will reaffirm the notion that Trump is subjugating everything to his own self-interest here in a way that's really unhealthy. I think it's too late. If they were going to establish something, they needed to establish it like months and months and months ago. And maybe the reason they can't establish it is because there's nothing to establish. Yeah, this is all desperate Fox News, Breitbart, Prager University bullshit. I, I mean that seriously. So first of all, it reminds me a little bit of like Bill Ayers and Joe the Plumber and all this bullshit that everybody thought mattered and you know it was ridiculous. The big thing, here's the October surprise. It's no surprise at all. COVID cases are on the rise, okay? Mm -hmm. That's gonna define the last seven days of this race. In every uh, market in the country, Yep. Newspaper, television, radio, they're going to be talking about COVID cases. OK, mm -hmm. so that's the big thing. And, you know, Trump, you you know, one of the things I thought we did well in 12 was we understood that race was different in 08. As you know, everybody's like, hey, this isn't so hopey and changey. It's like, yeah, man, this is a fucking knife fight in a phone booth and it's going to be close. OK, <laughs> and so uh, Trump wants to recreate. And, you know, Biden's not Clinton. He's an incumbent, not a challenger. He's got a public health and economic crisis that he's mismanaged. So I, I agree. No matter. By the way, if they invited Barack Obama, I, I think that would give Joe Biden 400 electoral votes. OK, yeah. that would just be insane. Yeah. Um, but I think whatever they do, you know, will be celebrated by the Tucker Carlson's of the world and the Hugh Hewitt's of the world. And we see again, that is the problem for the Republican Party and our country. They're, they're captive to that reality that they've created. OK. And everybody asks, what's going to happen to the Republican Party? What's Josh Hawley going to do? What's Nikki Haley yeah, going to do? Right. What's Mitch McConnell going to do? They don't fucking matter. Right. If Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch and, you know, Hannity and Ingram and Breitbart and Sinclair. And they decided, you know what? Trumpism was fine. Trump was just a flawed messenger. That is going to be what they do. They call the shots. And David's right. I mean, that Hunter Biden stuff, nobody knew what the hell he was talking about. Right. By the way, he didn't even mention the, you know, expansion of the Supreme Court. Another right. thing yes. you know, that you would have Amazing. thought Trump would have gone to. Amazing. So I'm not worried about, you know, an October surprise because I think at the end of the day, people see through his bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break here and pay some bills, and then we'll be back with David Pluff, David Axelrod, and Alyssa Mastromonaco on Hell and High Water. So let's get to work, people. Let's bring this home. I love you, Philadelphia. Honk if you're fired up. Honk if you're ready to go. Are you fired up? Are you ready to go? Are you fired up? Are you ready to go? Let's go make it happen. I love you, Philadelphia. So we're back with Pluff and Axe and Master Monaco and listening there to their former boss deal with the weirdness of holding a campaign rally in the home stretch of a presidential campaign with people in cars and having to kind of cope with the strangeness of the horns, making trying to make the the horns into a, an asset rather than a liability. Um, but hearing that fired up, ready to go thing um, does 
you know, stir some memories, guys, right? Um, so I want, I want to spend a little time here in the in this portion of our discussion, like kind of thinking about 2008 and 2012 and just kind of reminiscing about some of the stuff as you guys reflect on on this race in the context of the races you ran. And I, I guess as good a place as any to start is to ask, in 2008, at this point, how confident were you at that point? Did you like 10 days out? Like what was your mental, emotional, psychic, spiritual state well, I'll start. I mean, so we obviously had good numbers. Uh, you know, we didn't have quite the sophisticated data operation as we did in 12, but we had good data. Obviously, we'd had three good debates. The economy was collapsing. McCain has, wasn't handling that well. We, uh, you know, David, we were winning attributes, strong leader, things that, you know, in the beginning of the general election matchup, we weren't. And so we felt really good. But listen, I, and this isn't just spin. You, you never feel super confident. Are you going to get the turnout? We were super reliant on young people turning out, historic African-American turnout. You know, everybody's asking us, will there be a Bradley effect? We didn't think there would be, but would we lose some votes? So I don't think you ever get confident until you start to see real votes getting unpacked on election day. And if precincts come in from Indiana and Virginia and parts of Florida and they match what you thought and you thought you're in a good place and you feel good. So um, I don't know. The thing that struck me was obviously, you know, every year that passes, uh, people will reflect more on the historic nature of his candidacy and his election, first African-American president. But we were just trying to win the fucking race, you know, and so you didn't really have time to reflect on the history. I think it's now more when you see the pictures, you realize what a special thing you were a part of. But, you know, I think we were confident um, and we were confident in 12 as well, even though it was a much closer race. But, you know, you're never super secure. And this was a new thing, which is this young, you know, African-American candidate at a time of national crisis. Would the votes be there? And, you know, uh, again, we really liked our position in the race, but you you never get confident for me anyway, till you start seeing actual precinct votes. Yeah, I was on the road uh, on all the great trips that Alyssa helped. Uh, orchestrate. And um, when you were on the road, it was hard not to feel it. I mean, we would drive up to these, you know, sometimes, you know, 80,000 people Mm. that the last swing through Virginia was, you know, in in pouring, pouring rain, you know, people out in the pouring rain. How big was that crowd in Virginia? Like, where were we? On a former Civil War battlefield, right? Yeah, in Manassas, in Manassas. You just could not not feel it, that something was happening here. And so we didn't just have the numbers. This goes to Alyssa's point earlier about crowds. I mean, yeah, crowds don't vote, but they do mean something. And, uh, you know, when I hear Trump say nobody's ever seen anything like this. Well, yeah, we've seen it and we've seen much bigger crowds than that. So I, I think we felt good. We just wanted to we wanted to land the plane, but we knew that the plane was coming in for a pretty good landing. You know, and for me, like about 10 days out, I think we had to make the decision to go to Hawaii because President Obama's grandmother was uh, not going to do well. And so, you know, that was something I was thinking about earlier, you guys, and three of us, I don't know if you'll remember, the three of us in Gibbs got on a call and I told you because President's sister had called me to tell me. And I said, we have to make the decision because he'll never make the decision to leave the trail. Like he doesn't want to let us down. He doesn't want to let all his supporters down. 
and we did and thank god because you know she ended up passing away on november 3rd but you know the thing that comes from the top which would have been pluff in this case is like <laughs> nothing's good enough and i don't mean that as a slight asshole but like for <laughs> us you know it's like okay we're going to madison wisconsin well the hard count was a hundred thousand and we got ninety two thousand like what happened to those eight thousand even though like the average flake rate's like 30 percent and you know sorry so for Alyssa. Us, yeah it's okay what you did to me turned me into a lunatic but no you know so for us i think and because i never was on the road in those last couple of weeks to me it was just i just focused on the short every shortfall you know what does yeah. it mean what, what can we do better how can we do i'm better? here to how tell you i don't give a people? shit about pluff you did good you did um, really good. Yeah, uh, she hung the moon. I mean, yeah. we also closed strong, though. Yeah, we did. I mean, it was magic. Everything was magic. felt so. It felt so momentous. The whole end of it, because at that point, part of why I asked about the confidence is that I think you know after the financial crisis, it was sort of clear. You know, I don't, I don't even remember the debates. For instance, like they seemed meaningless. You know, McCain had been so erratic handling the financial crisis, and Obama had been so cool. That he'd already passed this kind of real-time test of leadership and people, it was like the debates. Yeah, the debate, all, listen, there was a 10-day period that that campaign really right. was settled. And it was from September 15th when Lehman Brothers collapsed to September 26th when we had the first debate, which was supposed to be about national security and foreign policy. And they turned it into half of that and half on the financial crisis. But you're right, John. I mean, from that, from the 26th on, I think, you know, the, the die was cast. By the third debate, debate, uh, you know, McCain yeah. went a little yeah. bit on the kind of Trumpy Palin path there, but it was half-hearted and it was completely ineffective. So we know. You can't always tell, you can't always get so lucky as to have your opponent declare in the midst of a worldwide financial a meltdown that the fundamentals of the economy are strong. That's one of those things you can't yeah. plan for as, you know, Hey, thanks. Yeah. He wasn't that, in, you know, he just wasn't interested. You know, he, that wasn't his focus. He, no. he was a national security guy. And, and so this was not in his wheelhouse, but you know, that thing about feeling history and so on. I think the thing that Obama does so well is put things in that context. That's what I liked so much about the end of that speech in, uh, in Philadelphia, as as fun as it was, uh, he really he really drew out the context of this and talked about what it means about us. That's why his convention speech was so important. The guy can he can give lift like no one else. And that whole campaign was not just about Barack Obama. It was about the country and what it would mean. And uh, you felt that people were out there, not just for him. They were out there because of their vision of what it would mean for the country to have him as president. Right. I think we all can agree. We are three of the most blessed people on the planet to have been part of that. That was an extraordinary experience. By the time you got to the end, I remember thinking that I needed to be on that plane for the last like 72 hours because it was sort of like history was clearly about to be made. I was also writing like three or four pieces a day at that point, something I probably couldn't do now if I tried. But like that event in North Carolina when he had learned that his grandmother yeah. had died and we got to that event i think it might have been in somewhere in charlotte it was like on a on a football field or something and we came out and it was like raining there all day and then obama came out and the clouds sort of parted and he sort of got up and started talking and you know he cried in that speech you know the tears rolled down his face and everyone could sort of see that i just remember thinking like that was the penultimate event he had just learned earlier in that day that his grandmother had right. died, who meant more to him in the world than anybody, yeah. I think, right? I mean, he had an incredibly mm -hmm. tight bond with her. You never saw, with his level of high level of composure, I don't think, I think it was the first time he'd ever shed tears publicly in his life. And 
That then followed by Manassas, which was one of the most extraordinary political events I've ever been to. I mean, it was just an incredible, like out of a movie, you know, with the rain that you were talking about, Pluff. And there were 80,000 people there on a hillside that you could not see past them. They were literally, as far as I could see, these people were out. And when he was doing that end, the end, you know, fired up, ready to go, like the people were, were jumping on the ground and the earth was shaking under your feet, literally, at the end. I don't know. Yeah. It's just like uh, that was magic. It's hard to maintain your sense of skeptical oppositional detachment from these events when you're in the middle of a thing like that. You're just like, even if you're a hard bitten cynical asshole as I am, you sort of get swept up in it, and you're like, wow, this is kind of an amazing thing I'm witnessing here. How can I like implant this in my brain so I don't lose and, and it? And write ever? a really lucrative book about it. That's well, wow, just man, just came right in there and just cut my knee, as you know, trying to be vulnerable and Sorry. Uh, just. The thing that was so, again, I watched that speech from the headquarters uh, in Chicago and all the kids who were, who had flown in to work on the Grant Park event, everyone was in the headquarters. We were having a countdown meeting and uh, we were watching C-SPAN and C-SPAN, of course, always carries things much longer than it probably should, except that we saw at the end that Barack Obama didn't get off stage. He took it in. He sat there. They played signed, sealed, and delivered. He stood on stage. He, like, waved to everybody. And you could just see in his face that, like, this was it. And all the kids at that in that one moment, they were like, fucking game on, bitches. Look at his face. Game on. And, you know, that was... But it was, like, very... Even today, and I don't know about you guys, but, like, because so much happened so quickly, you know, from the time the general election up until, you know, through the inauguration, that I go back and I watch those things and I get very emotional. Yeah. You know, like, oh, I was sure. talking I was talking to my sister and I was telling her how we were going to talk about this. And she's like, do you remember when you called me on election night? And I was like, no, <laughs> like not at all. And she's like, you were on a trolley and I answered the phone and you said, sis, we did it. And I was like, oh my God. And I started crying because like, I didn't remember that. I didn't even remember feeling that, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing about that Manassas event, I mean, it was Virginia number one. So now the Virginia solidly blue. Remember back then people thought we were out of our minds that we were going to compete yeah. yes. in Virginia. So to end there. And then of course, you know, you're in a very, very traditionally conservative part of Virginia, which we did really well in. And you're right next to a civil war battlefield. Yeah. There's Barack Obama. Yes. I mean, it was a spectacular mm-hmm. way to end that campaign. I uh, remember uh, before he talked about his grandmother before that, he was sitting alone at the front of the a bus or RV. I think we were on a bus for some reason. I don't know. Yeah, but, you were. But um, I sat down next to him and I said, you know, people know your grandmother died and they're going to expect you to say something. And he said, I know. Don't worry. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to say something. And what he said was so beautiful and it's so beautifully melded into what he wanted to say in the larger context about what the campaign was really about. And he made his grandmother, you know, sort of emblematic of the people that he was there to speak for and fight for. But when it was over, he just walked alone back to the bus. And you knew that he was thinking about her. I still get verklempt thinking about that whole experience, knowing what she meant to him. It was, yeah, man, it was amazing. There's a a story that I want you guys to tell because I sort of feel like I know everything about this campaign that you could know from an outsider's perspective. Like I you know, did a lot and of unfortunately some things that you could only know from an insider's <laughs> perspective. <laughs> yes, that's true. Um, 
But there's a story that Alyssa suggested to me you, you all might be able to talk about that I don't believe has ever been reported anywhere. Do you all have a memory on election day of Obama going to vote, election day 2008, and Louis Farrakhan being at the polling place and hanging around because he wanted to somehow get in the same oh, picture yeah. with Obama? Yeah. Do you remember this? Farrakhan. And Bill Ayers yeah, being Bill there Ayers too? Bill Ayers as well. Yes, yeah. yes, see, yes, yes, yes. Okay, tell it was this. like the bar scene from Star Wars. Of like, <laughs> yes. you know, uh, yeah, yeah, it was. A, that's ex- remember, we figured like it's election day. We're going to go to Indiana. It's easy. And it's like, holy shit, we got a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you know? <laughs> I heard from Secret Service and the advance person who was at the polling place. And they're like, uh, Liz, so uh, Louis Farrakhan's here and he's not leaving. And I was like, that's so funny. And he's like, I'm fucking dead serious. And then I go into Bluff and I was like, here's one for you. He's like, it just... I don't want to know. Just take care of it. So then we had to call Barack Obama and be like, so Louis Farrakhan is at your polling place. And he's like, stop it. I'm like, no, it's happening. <laughs> and then we finally like waited him out. POTUS is getting ready or then Barack Obama getting ready to get in the car with Michelle. And I was like, sir, true story. It seems Bill Ayers is. And it probably wouldn't have mattered, right? But you got to like run through the tape. You got to sweat everything, you know, until the end. So uh, that is a very true story, right? It was like, what the hell's going on here? Heilman, you got scoop. How did it get resolved? We waited him out. You just like just sat and waited until they finally gave up and went home? It's a good good argument for mail-in voting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously. 12, you know, do you remember X? I don't think this has been reported. So the very last day, I don't know, John, were you on the last day, trip in 12? I was literally about to ask a question directly on this question, on this point. But yes, I was. So, you know, we had this very emotional last event yeah, in Iowa, in Iowa. outside in Des Moines. In Des Moines. We yeah. actually toured our old headquarters out there. And, um, you know, Gibbs was on that trip with us because yes. it was like the last day. And so it was Gibbs, Axe, and I in the senior staff cabin. And yeah, Obama I, do comes rem- in, I remember this. Yeah. And he's asking us, you know, well, we talked about the Iowa event. You know, it was emotional for him how great yeah. it was. And then he's like, well, what are you guys hearing on the data? We kind of go through the states and what we think. And, you know, we're saying we're very confident. And so um, he, Michelle's on the trip. So he's like, he, he goes to walk out to go join her. But then he walks back in. And he says, if I see the three of you at my door, like I saw you in New Hampshire, no way. <laughs> yeah, right. I think it was if I see you three motherfuckers yeah, at my door, it was, yeah. there's going to be trouble. Yeah, and he yeah. wasn't kidding. No, no. And he, it's not a term he used very often. Uh, yeah. But he, right. said, uh, he said, if you three motherfuckers are at my door, like you were in New Hampshire, there's going to be trouble or something <laughs> like that. And honestly, like I felt yeah. good about the race. The data kind of scared me a little bit. <laughs> it was like, yeah. He yeah. was deadly serious. Yes. That's not a fun, frothy line that he threw off there. Just for the sake of anybody who does not know this story, we, we have to actually play that back to tell the story the right way, right? It's you guys showing up at his door on the night of the New Hampshire primary in 2008, which he famously lost, and you were the ones who delivered him the bad news. So now, we're now four yeah. years later, he's reminding because you that of was that, a race which is really one of the worst we were nights. supposed to win because, you know, the polling, even though we all had a kind of sinking feeling, the polling favored us. So- you know, he and uh, Michelle were in their suite getting ready for the victory party. And then we knock on the door and say, uh, sir, could you come out in the hallway for a second? <laughs> and he knew that we weren't pulling him out in the hallway to give him good news. Uh, and yeah, that was so he didn't want a repeat of that in 2012. I wasn't sure he remembered it was the three of us or that even happened. Like that clearly was a searing <laughs> moment for him. Yeah. So him to bring that back. 
You told me that story up in New Hampshire this year, David, and I was pissed at you because somehow that was another fucking story that didn't make it into Game Change. So thanks a lot telling me that story like years later when it's no good to me. Oh, poor you. But I will (laughs) say this, and this is actually a very relevant thing. That day, the last day of 2012, began in Madison, Wisconsin. And what I remember, a very precise thing about, we were on the tarmac after Obama did an event. We got on the, we were on the tarmac. We were about to fly from Madison to Des Moines. There were only two events that last day of 2012. And we were standing on the tarmac, Axe and you, and maybe Jay Carney. And I was asking you guys what you thought about the state of play in the various battleground states. And you, Pluff, went through each one of them and offered a very precise prediction about what was going to happen in each one of these states. And your confidence and precision were startling. You guys were obviously consumed a lot of data, commissioned a lot of data, and were you know famously data-oriented. But you were very confident at a very high degree of granularity about what was going to happen. And when the results eventually came came in, it turned out that like you missed one state by you know I think you guys were thinking you were going to no, win North Carolina. I predicted three thirty-two. That was my prediction. That. Yeah, okay. he did predict 332. But my main point about this is that you were right on almost everything. You may have been right on everything. How is it that you had that level of precision and confidence and you were and were proven right in 2012? What has happened to the world that we don't have that kind of precision and confidence anymore? Because, you know, even if we allow for the notion that the polls weren't as wrong in 2016 as, a, as the conventional wisdom says, you know, even if we correct for that, the reality is that vast numbers of people, you, me, everybody on this call, and millions of Americans looked at a lot of polls in 2016 and were led to believe Hillary Clinton Including was going to win, Trump and campaign. she didn't. <laughs> yes, everybody. So what what is it that's made polling seemingly less reliable? Usually as we move along in the space-time continuum, things get better and more reliable and more sophisticated and more precise. This seems like we have less confidence in the numbers now than we did on that day in 2012 when you guys knew, seem to know you know, with a fair degree of certainty about what was going to happen and were proven right. First of all, you know, it was our data. Okay, You can only speak authoritatively about your own data. Secondly, that was a really stable race. And, you know, like now, you know, you had Obama in these battlegrounds at 49, 50, 51, Romney at 46, 47. Most of the vote had been allocated. 16, you know, the polls at the very end in the battleground states were like 46, 43. So there was a lot of people unallocated. You know, Axe already talked about the people who viewed both negatively. Normally that breaks even. You know, Trump won them uh, decisively. The third party vote was higher. So as you think about now, I mean, the question is, this race has been stable. It has been consistent. And Biden is at 50-51 in a lot of states. Trump's at 44 or so. So it may be that this ends up being more like 12 than not, which is what we're seeing is what Mm -hmm. we get. But listen, you know, we had great data. Um, we had great polling. We had great volunteers informing all that. The race had been stable. And the other thing I'd say is we just knew these states. God, yeah. we knew Florida. We knew Colorado. We knew Virginia. Yeah. We knew it. We just knew just it, right? Just on the data point, you know, we had statewide polling. We had analytics polling and analytics themselves. And we had battleground polling. And if there was any divergence in any of that data, we would immediately convene to try and determine where the glitch was. And if we had to go back in, we'd go back in. But we were really, really assiduous about the regimen. And it was, as David says, that race in 2012 traded within a narrow band. And we were two to four points up from May on. We went up to seven after 
Romney did the 47% thing. And then I always say in the spirit of sportsmanship, we threw the first debate and gave him three, three <laughs> points back. But I remember all the craziness about polls in that race. And I kept saying, you know, we're going to know soon enough and, you know, we're going to win this race. And I, I never doubted it because it was so, so stable structurally. And honestly, David's right. This race is the same way. It's just what happened before and the volatility of Donald Trump. But objectively, yeah. looking at the data, you would not say that Trump's going to pull another inside. He, he needs a straight flush now, and I don't think he's going to pull it. Yeah. All right, let's take a break here and listen to some advertisements, and then we'll be back with the last part of Hell and High Water. Biden was very disrespectful last night to President Barack Hussein Obama. You saw that. Barack Hussein Obama. Remember, Rush Limbaugh would always do that. He'd do Barack Hussein Obama. There he is. Donald <laughs> John Trump, 45th President of the United States, um, and maybe not for much longer. We're back with David Pluff and David Axarado, Alyssa Mastermonico, to discuss a, a subject I think of great interest to many and now that Barack Obama's back on the campaign trail and maybe having more impact on the campaign trail than Joe Biden himself, the, the great grand psychodrama of 44 and 45 is something I'd like to have some words with you guys about because I think you may be able to shed some light on it. I mean, there's one thing that's really clear after four years of Donald Trump. He's just obsessed with Barack obsessed. Obama, just obsessed, obsessed. And he's now out there talking about Obama, hitting the Hussein thing again. It's just it's just like a dog with a bone, right? And you know, we know he's been telling Bill Barr into the late stages of this campaign that he's got to go indict Barack Obama. Obama Gate is, you know, the great scandal of, of in his mind. Try to explain for me what you think it is that makes Trump so obsessed with Obama and more importantly because you know more about this really. How does Obama think about Trump? We know how Trump thinks about Obama. Obsessive craziness and inadequacy and insecurity. Like, how does Obama think about Trump? Sad and dangerous. I think he thinks about him like a lot of people think about him. He watches his behavior and he shakes his head. And But I, I also think Obama has a real reverence for the institutions of this democracy and a great respect for the presidency. And um, I think the sort of defiling of all of that is what really offends him. People always ask me, well, is he worried about Trump dismantling his legacy? I've never once heard him talk about that. He never says he's messing with my legacy. He's messing with my accomplishments. I think Barack Obama is very secure about what his legacy is. He's worried about the country and what uh, the president does to the democracy. Just one word on Trump. You know, Trump is a guy, and you know this, uh, John, Trump is a guy who he flays the media, he flays the establishment, but he's always hungry for their approbation. And it is extraordinarily vexing to him to think that Barack Obama has what he'll never get. And that's why, you know, some jamoke says, well, they ought to give him the Nobel Prize, uh, you know, to, about Trump. And Trump says, why aren't they talking about me? You know, I mean, it's his obsession with, uh, with Obama is, uh, is pathological. But it is not... Um returned by Obama. No. I mean, mm -mm. he just doesn't 
there, it is not personal to him. It is all about the institution and the damage. I think like a lot of us, he can't believe someone like this is sitting in the situation room at the Oval Office or flying around on Air Force One, uh, basically undermining American democracy. So I don't know if Trump can pick up on that and it infuriates him that you know Trump's obsessed with Obama and Obama's not obsessed with Trump. But here's what I'd say, just from a political yeah. standpoint, what they should have done at the beginning of this general election, like let's say back in February, where it's Bernie or Elizabeth or could be Biden, what they should have done is Trump should have said, you know what, I disagree with Barack Obama. That's no secret to anybody. But the truth is, you know, Barack Obama was a moderate compared to all these people. There were some moves here to kind of position Obama versus the rest of the Democratic field that would have been smart. And he just can't allow himself to do that. One of the things I think about, you know, uh, this decade, the next decade, the next decade after that, you know, Barack Obama is already a consequential American president, and there aren't that many. And he's going to be that way and his legacy is going to grow and the impact he's going to have is going to be profound. And Donald Trump, you know, if the election goes as we think it might, is going to be disgraced. Okay, this is a guy whose post-presidency is going to be cold and unforgiving. He may not be able to give back loans. No one's going to want to do business with him or his grifter kids. Eventually, I think you're going to see Republicans treat him as a pariah. So, you know, their post-presidencies, I think, are going to be starkly different. And I think his obsession with Obama is not going to go away if he gets beat. It's only going to grow. So uh, it's bizarre to me um, because, again, I think there's things Trump could have done vis-a-vis Obama in this campaign to strengthen his political position. He just can't see because he's blinded by hatred. We could have a whole nother podcast about the things that Trump could have done, like he could have behaved (laughs) like a normal president in dealing with a hundred year pandemic. And that would have helped his candidacy, too. But he can't. You know, he is who he is. But Alyssa, I, I ask you just to, to go back, I mean, to think back a little bit. There was a moment when the birtherism thing started, when Trump was the main carrier of the birther banner. He got into Obama's head a little bit. He got into his head enough that Obama took the time to go up, go back and try to find his birth certificate. And you guys made that a thing. You, you recognized there was a there was some political threat involved in that. You you went to kind of, you would, he actually eventually kind of said, I can prove it. You know, I'm not being critical of Obama for doing that, but it was clearly an unsettling moment when Trump became the face of that argument, that racist argument. And it was enough of a problem politically that you all felt you had to deal with it and diffuse it in some way. So I, I, I clearly don't think that Obama's obsessed with Trump, but there was a way in which Trump, in he clearly saw that there was something dangerous happening with Trump in the way that he was able to move and use that issue to gain political capital. He gained political capital from it. It's the beginning of his, his rise to become Republican nominee and Republican president. So I sort of, I'm wondering about like what you recall about how Obama thought about watching Trump's rise and knowing that he was part of Trump's rise because Trump was using him as a foil to gain a certain kind of traction that he never had pre- previously in politics. I think, and you guys tell me if you disagree, I think it's more that Barack Obama is someone who plays everything on the level. And Donald Trump was just lying, like lying with no foundation. It was like just an utter lie. And I think that in the beginning, he did ignore it, like not ignore it. Like he he knew about it, but he was like, this is fucking nuts. We're not. No, we're not going to do this. And it kept going. And, you know, what people forget now that like we have this sideshow of a president is that like actual real reporters were asking him about it and were asking why he wasn't releasing it as if we were hiding something. And so I think that it was more of a just stop the conversation, um, you know, like in releasing the birth certificate, which, you know, he found and fine, it was great. But I think that more than anything, you 
we realized and he realized how dangerous someone with absolutely no grounding in the truth could be because he had very reputable Donald Trump, that is Donald Trump had very reputable people not necessarily believing it, but at least asking about it like it was a reasonable question. And I think that was the first real glimpse into how dangerous, you know, this kind of person could be. Yeah, I think the list is exactly right. I mean, in the very beginning, because this was 11, 2011, you know, he kind of shrugged it off. But here's the thing, when he made the decision to release it and to take it on, if I recall, like he wasn't talking about, like, we got to do this because of Trump. It was to Alyssa's point. He was getting asked about it by journalists, local TV interviews. Right. I think his view is, listen, it's going to be hard for Republicans in Congress to do work with me if like 60 percent of their base thinks I wasn't born in America. <laughs> and if right. Fox keeps on pounding on this. So I, I've just got to kind of pull off the Band-Aid here. I will tell you, we sold a shitload of like birth certificate mugs and T-shirts <laughs> and things. though. So uh, we made some money off the merch. But that was a. Right. But again, when he decided to do it, it wasn't like I've got to do this because of Trump. It was just right. Trump was definitely and he didn't like, like doing it. He, he didn't, didn't, didn't he like doing it at all. Irritated that he had to do it. It was one of those things that, again, in like the era of Trump, we don't think about. But we had actual things that we were doing in the White House that were important, and like this is what people were talking about. And he was just like, "Let's fucking move on. Like, let's be done." And that right. was that right. was really it. So here's the thing: think back to 2016. Obama campaigned pretty vigorously for Hillary Clinton, right? did a lot of things for her, thought it was really important that she win. He understood the, the danger that Trump posed to the Republic. As I recall it, um, Pluff, you may remember this, you know, that there was a moment where Obama was very confident that Hillary was going to win until a moment very late in the campaign when he was dispatched to Michigan. And he sort of looked up and said, wait, they're sending me to Michigan three days out? Like, why? How? What's going on here? How could Michigan be in, in peril? Why, why am I needed in Michigan 72 hours out? So I'd ask all three of you just to give me a sense of how Obama's view about this election, both as a kind of analyst and as a and in terms of the stakes, but how he thinks about how he's thinking about 2020 differently than how he thought about 2016, how he was feeling at this stage in 2016 versus 2020. He's a super surrogate in both of them, right? But obviously the world is different now and the race is different now for reasons that we've already discussed, but just kind of like situate Obama in 2016 versus 2020. And, and his relationship to the campaign, to Biden, to Trump, to the whole thing. Well, he was, uh, you know, obviously he was a sitting president at the time, so he had some, uh, he had other, other shit to do. But I, look, I think that all of us, and he included, there was an unsettled feeling about 2016. I think everyone sort of intellectually said, well, the data looks so, you know, we should win. But there was this feeling in your gut that she wasn't closing well. And that, uh, in fact, Trump was in, in his own goofy way. You know, he was pretty disciplined in delivering the blows he was delivering. So in a sense, our heads were overriding our gut on this. This is both your head and your gut tells you your, your head tells you Biden is a real in a really good spot here. But your gut is a little twisted because of what happened before. But I, Obama's a pretty rational person. I think he knows where this race is probably agrees with where they're sending him, knows what his role is, you know, has confidence in the team. Uh, some of whom, I mean, Jen O'Malley Dillon is a veteran of our campaigns and he's, he knows all of those folks. I think he feels pretty comfortable about what they're doing and what he's doing right now. I think that's right. I think also, this is just my personal opinion, but 
in 2016, in any race that Barack Obama had run and that was meaningful to him, he knew that you guys, all of us, gave him brutal honesty, right? If things were not going well, it was never going to be hidden from him because he was part of the team. And I think that 2016, people gave him the information that they thought, you know, that the campaign was like, oh, everything's going great. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, I've got a job. Cool. I'm glad. Right. This that's that's yeah. right. Oh, so that's absolutely you know, right. And it seems it seemed improbable, right, that Trump could win. I mean, right. And so he just believed what he heard, whereas with all of us, he always drilled down on everything. I'm sure with the Biden campaign, yeah. he's drilling down. He's certainly got the time, more time yeah, yeah. to be able to do it. But I think that was the big difference in 16. I think you're right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, because of 16, he's taking nothing for granted. So, I mean, it's been reported, but he was talking to a lot of the primary candidates, um, you know, as their campaigns right. were winding down. Spent a lot of time with Joe Biden, with General Malley Dillon when she came in, helping identify, you know, potential staff. And, you know, so he's just been on this race, you know. Uh, and again, I think if you see his performance in Philly, and I haven't seen it yet, uh, clips in Florida, but I think we'll see it today in Miami. Like, again, there's an urgency there. But I think you're right, John. I mean, I recall the last few days of 16 getting more inquiries from him. You sure everything's okay? The data holding up? Because he was a little unsettled, right? And so yeah. um, I think that, um, you know, from the very beginning of this cycle, it's been like, what can I do? And a lot of what he's done has not been visible, you know, but uh, he's yeah. doing what he can because doesn't want to be surprised again. Um, and, you know, the truth is, I think, you know, obviously he knows Biden as, as well as anybody, but Jill and, and his kids really at this point. But, you know, I think he really believes that, you know, there may be other presidential elections, so much about timing, where Biden's profile would not be um, as strong as it is now, but his empathy, his competence, right. um, you know, really are what the country calls for. And so I think he's, it's not just he wants a Democrat to win. I think he's really passionate that we have a threat to the, I mean, listen, that yeah, did, this the, is the about speech he gave in Philly at the Democratic Convention, you know, David, you saw it, I saw it, you know, but to hear him deliver it. It kind of scared you straight. Yeah. Okay. And I'm so glad he did it because as hard as it was for people yeah. to hear. So that's the other thing. He's really kind he of- He fundamentally believes it. Yeah. He believes right. it. I mean, he believes that this is no ordinary election and that the stakes are, you know, fundamental for the democracy. That's how he views this election. I don't want to end on a, on a, on a negative note, but I, but but I do want to anyway. ask this question. Yeah. <laughs> we'll turn it on him. Yeah. No, I mean, it's not a negative note. This is a clear, this is a clear, a question for the clear eyed realist that the three of you are. The thing that I would say listening to Obama, we said before at the very top of this, that it looked like he was having fun at that event in Philly, and it was. But there was, if you listened to what he was saying, there was one element where it seemed like if you parsed his words and his tone, that he's a little bit worried, like some number of people in Biden's world are, about complacency. Like, and he was going through, he's like, really, you know, trying to, Make sure people really know how to fill out those mail-in ballots. And there was a there's an underlying thing of like, let's this is all on track, but there's let's not fuck this up and let's pay attention to the details and don't get complacent. We gotta, you know, we gotta run through the tape, all that stuff. There's some still some a little bit of nervousness in there. Um, and just because the stakes are so high. So the, what I wanted to ask you guys to end with is given the, the the assessment you gave at the beginning of where you think the race is and your degree of confidence that. Uh, not perfect confidence, not total confidence, but high degree of confidence that we're going to end up with a, a positive result from the standpoint of Democrats on November 3rd or some days thereafter. What is it that's keeping you guys up at night right now? I mean, what are you 
you know, what's the, if, if there is a little pit in your stomach still, where, where, where does it reside? What's it connected to? What do you, beyond like crazy wild ass scenarios, like what gnaws at you a little bit? I definitely think for me that even looking today at like early votes started in New York and it's untenable how long the lines are, you know? And so I'm glad that people are out today, you know, but like the Barclays Center is six blocks long, double wrapped around the block. And we're really asking, wow. yeah, we're really asking a lot of people in doing their civic duty, right? And so I hope that these lines don't scare people away who are going to vote. I hope they motivate people to vote by mail if they can. Um, but no, I, I definitely worry about about the people who are the most diehard being scared at the last minute. The other thing, not to be whatever, but, you know, a lot of in a lot of states, schools and such are polling locations. And when there are covid outbreaks in some states, specifically in the Midwest, they may lose polling locations if there are covid outbreaks in these states where things are spiking. So that keeps me up. And I read all the local papers in Wisconsin to see how they're doing. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. You're a, with you're a University of Wisconsin graduate. You you know the terrain. Badger. 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 Yeah, for me, it is all turnout related. So, Alyssa, it's long lines. We know, all three of us, that not everybody stays on the line. Axe mentioned earlier, there's going to be some percentage of ballots spoiled absentee that there's mistakes made. Um, we saw in the primary that a lot of that was younger Democrats. Does turnout wane a little bit at the end of the voting uh, period here, early vote? Uh, do we not hit our numbers on election day with what's left? Uh, and I've always believed Trump's going to get his vote. Okay. Yeah. His fucking right. people are coming out. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's enough. Okay. It shouldn't be enough. But if we just miss a little here or there, right. because, you know, there's too many lines, too many ballots get spoiled. Intimidation. Yeah. Right. And so that's what keeps me up. I mean, Joe Biden is in a better position in this race, I really believe, than Hillary was. We were in 12. You can even argue in eight. Um, you have to go all the way back to like, you know, the 96 Clinton race. Um, and that was funky because right. of pro, but like, that's the reality. We shouldn't lie about it, but it doesn't take too much in these battleground states uh, to turn, you know, a four point win into a nail biter. And so to me, that is the concern. Yeah, um, I agree. And I think it's a valid concern. We're not just saying this to like scare people to make another set of calls into Wisconsin. Like it's a valid concern. Yeah. No one has gone through a race like this in the middle of a pandemic where voting habits have shifted so dramatically by necessity. If everyone who says they are going to vote for Joe Biden and everybody who says they are going to vote for Donald Trump votes, Joe Biden will win this election. And the question is whether these extraordinary circumstances skew the turnout in a way that somehow allows Donald Trump to once again pull an inside straight. Seems unlikely, partly because people are so braced by the experience they had four years ago, and they've had four years of experience with Trump. But uh, that's what keeps all of us up. You guys, um, I was really looking forward to doing this podcast, and uh, it was even better than I thought it was going to be. You guys are an absolute and utter delight. If it wasn't for Pluff being such a tight ass on time, I could do three hours of reminiscences from you guys telling uh, stories about your time together and um, those magical campaign part of the magic was these guys um, so same it's always fun to be together
you know, the one thing I say that I'd like to end on is that like the thing about Barack Obama, I think for all of us as we got closer to election day, whether it was like what you guys were doing or, you know, what I was doing in planning the election night events, it's like we all just felt we owed it to him. Like, I just feel like that's how we always operated and that it was not about us. But when it came down to the end, it's like we just had to deliver for him. And so I hope that, you know, now we're going to deliver for Joe Biden. Thank you, guys. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to David Axelrod, David Pluff, and Alyssa Mastromonaco for being here. If you like this episode of Hell and High Water, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating, make it a nice rating, in the Apple Podcast app. I am your host and executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roden handle research. Sari Soffer is our producer, and Christian Fidel Castro-Rossell is our executive producer.